You're listening to Young African Entrepreneur, Episode 20. Welcome to Young African Entrepreneur, the leading resource for starting and growing a business for flourishing entrepreneurs in sub-Saharan Africa. Join in as we discuss tactical advice, personal motivators, and unexpected surprises for industry leaders and market professionals as they chart their own path to success. It's your time, your journey, your Africa. So please welcome your host, Victoria Crandall. Welcome to another episode of Young African Entrepreneur. I'm your host, Victoria Crandall. Today's guest is Bram Fuzulani, the co-founder of Angle Dimension, Malawi's leading software developer. You can connect with him at Bram Fuzulani on LinkedIn. Bram is passionate about using tech to solve problems in Malawi's finance and insurance sectors. While he worked full-time at Malawi's leading ISP, he and his co-founders would meet up in their spare time to work on their side hustle, a software development company. After a big break and check from an insurance client, Brahm and his co-founders decided to make a go at turning their side hustle into a proper business. Angle Dimension was born. Over the years, Brahm has developed B2B products for microfinance institutions, commercial banks, and insurance companies. He's just developed a platform for unbanked Malawians who organize into savings groups for dispersing loans. They'll now be able to deposit and withdraw mobile money from the platform, facilitating the savings process. Bram is also the vice president of Malawi's ICT Association and is passionate about improving internet access for all Malawians. We chatted about the benefits of using tenders when you first start out, the cultural pushback he faced when pitching clients, his first product flop, and why everyone should be concerned about net neutrality in Africa. Don't forget to check out the show notes at www.yaepodcast.com and to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. You can also find us on YouTube soon. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Bram Fuzulani. Bram, welcome to Young African Entrepreneur. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Victoria. So I'd love to know, what are you working on right now that has you the most excited? Well, so... Right now, as Angoda mentioned, we are working on a project that is more focused in financial technology. And as you're putting it, it's an, an exciting project for us and it gives us energy to wake up every morning and look forward to another day to come and you know, see it through. When you say financial technology, what do you mean? So we are trying to build a platform that actually allows us to tap into the informal sector. And so when I say informal sector, I mean the majority of people that do not have access to owning a bank account, for example, or getting access to a loan from the bank. And so what these majority do, they organize themselves in communities and form groups and do savings contributions into a pool 
from which they actually uh, give each other loans at a soft um, interest rate. And we're trying to build a platform that actually helps them to tap into the mobile money platforms and, and other payment platforms, sort of to bridge the gap between the informal sector and the formal financial sector. That's great. Um, Thank you. You worked at Skyband, Malawi's leading internet service provider, for seven years. Why did you decide to leave and plunge into entrepreneurship? <laughs> so, you know, I think when you're an entrepreneur, there's so much you can actually do as far as working for another company is concerned. So I was working for Skyband and I actually, this was my first place to actually stay that long. I've worked with other companies and I would just work for a year and then move to another company. And with Skyband, I stayed seven years. But then even though I stayed seven years with Skyband, I was still I still had the passion for entrepreneurship. And so I would pursue other businesses after my work hours with colleagues. And in 2016, we, you know, I made a decision, we made a decision and said, you know what, I think we have to take a risk and go and try it full time. We don't have to be doing this as a part time job, but we have to go and uh, be there full time. Do you know where that kind of where that love for entrepreneurship comes from? Yes, I think it comes from the personal conviction that you have personally and you feel every day when you're doing your job, whether you're employed, whether you're doing your own thing. But someone once said that if your job when it's Sunday and it's 9 o'clock p.m. and you're thinking, oh, tomorrow I'm going to have to go to work again, then I think probably you should change your job, you know. <laughs> That's so true. But if it's job is, you know, like on a Sunday, you're like, I'm excited. I can't wait to go to, to work. And for me, I think I loved doing something that I would sit down and imagine. Uh, maybe an idea. And then I love seeing things into fruition. So that also pushed me to sort of, you know, take a risk and decide to do a personal thing. Did you face criticism for leaving a safe and comfortable job? A lot, a lot. I think that's common, you know, a lot. I think people still doubt when you take that board step, you're not too sure. I mean, you have to pay bills, you have to pay, you know, rent and other bills. And moving from that, I remember the first month I resigned and because I was using a postpaid phone from the company, and I changed, I was using the prepaid. And I had to ask people, how do you buy a data bundle? Because I've never done that, you know. So <laughs> I think when you think about the whole process of you transitioning from your comfortable life and when you tell your friends and family, colleagues, they think about the comfortable life and you're like, I mean, I think you're not all right upstairs. You're not thinking straight. You know, you shouldn't do this. But at the end of the day, you have to take a risk. No one has ever achieved greater things in life without taking a risk. So I had to take a risk. Well, and what were the major takeaways from working for a large corporation like Skyband? So, yes, that's very important. For me, the major takeaways were the, the relationship I had built over the years for working with such a large company because I was interfacing with uh, corporations and people. And so I think the network that I had created during my tenure at Skyband helped me when I moved into, into the entrepreneurship life to sort of leverage on the network, you know, try and get some business from within the community and also try and get the support from the community. And when you set out to, to found Angel Dimension, so what was the backstory of founding the company with your co-founders? 
Oh, okay. So, like I said, every evening, weekend, and holidays, because I was working for Skype, and, and Henry was working for another big software development company in Malawi. And so Juan was working for a central bank in Malawi. And because we shared the same passion, we would meet after hours and, you know, discuss an idea and develop a solution for that. And so we started doing this since 2011, you know, meet and, and discuss an idea, create a product, push it on the market, but not only on a serious sort of a knot. But that's what we were doing together, you know, leveraging the free hours that we had after our former jobs and weekends and holidays. So that was actually the beginning of uh, Ango Dimension. Wow. So you were actually developing this kind of as a side hustle with your two co-founders since 2011. So five years before you actually you know, before you left your day job and set out to establish the business? Correct. That's true. Wow. Okay. And kind of in that five-year time period, what were you doing exactly? So what we were doing is what every, I think, would be or wannabe entrepreneur would do. So what we would do is we would look out for people that are looking for custom-made solutions and they would come and say, oh, we're looking for something that can help us in the maybe stock market or something that will help us in the insurance market and would say, okay, we can do that for you guys. And so would create those sort of products, but sort of custom-made for different companies. And I would say that I think those are some of the jobs that actually kept us going, sort of sustain the passion, you know, because then we'd get a job and would deliver and make sure it's, you know, up to standard. And we'll be surprised by the response and the feedback from the customers. Like, no, this is, uh, we never expected. You actually were giving you, we're expecting you to fail and you give us a good job and stuff like that. And when we do that and we would sit down and review, we saw that we, I think we just needed to be serious. We needed to organize ourselves and, you know, make sure this thing is full time. And what was the deciding factor in deciding to go full time? The deciding factor in this, I'm not going to mention the customer. So in 2015, there was a customer, one of the biggest insurance companies in Malawi, said, you know, we're looking for a solution that customer portal, I should say, but we want it developed locally, but we're not too sure where the locals can actually do it. So we said, no, we can do it for you. And you'd be surprised what actually happened. So they sat down and said, you know what, how much money can we put aside that if we lose it, we're not going to actually uh, complain much. And they set out a budget and they said, okay, we're trusting you, you can do the job. And they gave us the job. We actually did the job beyond the expectation. We delivered on time. Actually, we were supposed to do it within 60 days. We did it within 30 days, delivered beyond expectation. And they paid us. And we're saying, I think, gentlemen, we need to be serious. Can we not use this money to find office space and buy furniture and we go there and do this thing full time? You know, so for us, that was a deciding moment because then we looked at the corporate image that we have set, you know, the image of the impression we've given the customer that we're always high standard and they're going to expect us to support this after we've delivered the product. And so for us, that was a deciding moment to take the risk and set out to be independent and find offices. Hmm. And where did, but kind of besides the insurance and the banking sectors, what were other sectors that were interested in your services kind of during this five-year period where you're really testing your idea? 
So while we were actually developing this insurance portal, we also sat down and we have a number of products actually off the shelf that we've been creating since 2011. We have one of the products that is ShareEdge that is used by stockbrokers on the market, used to manage the shares. And we also have a system that we developed in 2015 that is used, it's like a banking system for microfinance players. Because at that time we started the market and we realized that we had about 70-something microfinance players. And out of those, only about 12% were using computerized systems and they were using softwares from other countries. And so we said, why can't we come up with something that does provide local, simple local support and everything. So that is one of the softwares that we also developed in 2015 and we pushed it on the market. And so aside from this insurance, uh, we've developed a number of um, solutions over the years from 2011 to where we are now. And can you explain the business model? I mean, do you go out in the market and you assess a demand and then in function with that demand, you develop the apps or do you try to develop something in-house and then i mean how does it work like your your business model yes because i think the other problem that i think that exists i know it exists in malawi sure it does exist in other countries as well is that when you set out to be an entrepreneur and you have uh, different ideas that you feel addressing a specific challenge within the community the problem is that you don't find the investors immediately and so, but you still have to sustain your living. So that's uh, our model right now. Okay, so you were using a tender model until recently. So how has it changed? We sort of changed from the tender model to a full-time technology company. So developing our own products and pushing them on the market. One thing, one drawback with a tender model is that you're at a ransom of uh, different companies evaluating how many, I don't know, however many people have actually bid for that particular project. And you're not too sure whether it's going to go your, your way or not. And so that, I think, is, it works, but I think it's, there's a lot of gambling. And But I think at the same time, as an entrepreneur that is not being funded by any other investor, that also actually works well. And I think is a model for many entrepreneurs in Africa. We have decided to take a different model of developing solutions and pushing them on the market while addressing the biggest challenge. Because sometimes you maybe develop a platform or a solution that is not addressing the bigger market. And at the end of the day, you find yourself, I think, exhausting all resources that you you have to try and sustain on the market. And so we've changed recently to actually solution provider. And we're focusing mostly in the financial technology platform. Because I was going to ask you how you manage kind of that balance of pretty much, you know, making sure that you're not exhausting your research and development costs and kind of an assessing demand. Yes, it's always a challenge. I mean, even, you know, the cultural challenges that you have to deal with also, aside from the business challenges, For in my case or in our case, the cultural challenge being not sure or not trusting the homegrown solution. So if it's done by someone from from Cote d'Ivoire, for example, or from from Rwanda, then, you know, well, we, we trust it, you know. But if it's something that's done locally, you know, I'm not too sure whether this, this is actually going to work. 
even though if you show them like okay look there are actually four or five guys that are using it it's working you know so the issue of exhausting resources i think it's still it's going to be there for us at the end of the day i think it's about knowing your your market and actually balancing the resources that you have so for us we've learned through experience and we're trying to adjust to play along those lines okay so you always make sure that there is demand and that people are going to pay for your services before you actually invest into the research and development yes yes okay and then you found most of that demand to be in fintech and insurance products. Correct. Because so one of our products recently developed also is a customer onboarding solution. So right now, if you were to walk into any of the service providers, so being be it a microfinance or a bank or insurance, for you to sign up for a particular service, you are given a huge pile of forms for you to fill you know, take home and then you're going to have to sit down and fill them and then bring them back and back and forth. So we built a custom onboarding mobile app that actually helps these service providers to easily onboard customers using the mobile application on a tablet. And so, you know, it works on offline. You can do it. If you have network, then you're going to use it online, but you don't have to actually have a network wherever you're onboarding customers, meaning the service providers can actually go in remote areas, onboard customers, let people in the communities open bank accounts without having to actually travel or fill bigger forms or, you know. So we decided that I think there's a lot of opportunity within the microfinance or the financial technology sphere and insurtech platform. So we said, why can't we actually focus on that? Just to give you some numbers, in Malawi, we have a population of about 18 million, not much. But of that, you'd be surprised that actually 21% is actually um, formally saved by the financial market, meaning they actually have bank accounts. 21%, you know, oh, wow. and the rest do not have bank accounts. And some of the challenges to do with this rigorous process of opening a bank account, you have to fill a form, you have to go back and forth. So we actually brought in this innovation and many other innovations. So just to answer your question, why we decided to actually innovate around financial technology and insurance uh, platform. So, you know, kind of through these tenders, you've taken on both large corporates and the Malawian government as clients. And yes. I'd love to know, was it difficult to communicate the value proposition to them? It's just because when you think of a lot of large corporates or African governments, very often you don't find your interlocutors are not the, maybe the most tech savvy. So kind of what was that experience like, you know, working with them? Well, so for private sector, I think it's very easy because they understand what they need and how they want it. For government projects that we've worked on, and we were lucky that we worked on um, projects that were funded by World Bank. And so those actually come with clear QRs uh, to say this is what we're looking for. And what we did was to just advise them on actually how best they can achieve the same uh, bottom line, but using the latest technologies. But I think for the private sector, they do understand the need. And I think the fact that we're also, as a country, we're just um, we're developing it towards 
more sophisticated systems and sort of to embrace the change that is coming within the technology sphere. Most corporations have started realizing that actually tapping into the local talent, uh, tapping into the local solutions is ideal for the sake of the supports. Before the proliferation of the local talent that we have right now, you'd imagine that some systems would be supported from someone maybe sitting in India or someone sitting in, in USA, for example. And the, the issue of time difference was a business killer because you are stranded, the bank is not operating and you want someone to support your system, but they're actually sleeping because of time difference. You know, you have to wait for them. And I think for us that that was an advantage because then the private sector realized, and even now also the government, I think, is realizing that this is what we want. But I think when you know how you, you should actually provide the solution to the government, then it plays to your advantage also. There's no restrictions to say these are rules and you should actually do this. They are more open and they are more accommodating in terms of uh, suggesting solutions to, to them. Mm. And yes. When you're out prospecting clients, what's your sales pitch? Well, so because now we've moved from a tendering process to pushing for our own solutions. So always when I actually meet a potential customer, I tell them, look, I'm going to give you a solution. I'm going to actually match or beat actually whosoever is providing you with the same kind of a solution and give you the local support which you can actually access anytime and i'm not charging you for the support and you can talk to me in a vernacular language if you're from around here the most important aspect is that i usually talk to potential customers and tell them look there's no one who is going to understand our problems better than ourselves you know i cannot come to uh, ivory coast and say you know i think I know your problems. I think I know how to solve them. I would respect the locals because they have lived there long enough and they understand the cultural issues and everything. And so there's no one who better understands our problems than ourselves. And so if we build the solutions, it means we have understood the problems. We have experienced the problems and we are building something that we actually have a passion to say, you know what, let's solve this problem once and for all. And your head of research and development, step us through kind of the researching process for a new product. It's a funny and quite exciting experience. I find myself in places or in locations that, you know, because, for example, when we were, when I was actually looking into this new product that we're actually finalizing development process, I put myself into the shoes of someone in the rural area trying to access insurance services, for example, you know, and think, how can I use the existing or the available tools or means? Because people from the village are able to send each other mobile money, you know. Someone can send their parent in the village money via mobile money. You know, and these people, this is all they know. You can send each other money. Now, the process of coming up with a product that actually speaks the language of the people in the rural areas or the people that you're targeting, you have to experience their life. You have to live their life and sort of feel the pain or feel the, the process and be able to think along those lines and provide or think about something that is very simple, to understand and very easy to use 
And that's for me, most of the times, that's the process I put myself into. You know, I find myself speaking to my colleagues because my colleagues are technical and they understand development process. So when you're discussing the product, they understand it from the technical point of view. You know, and oftentimes would say, you know, we have to speak the language of someone in the rural area because he's or they are the users of the system. And we have to experience their pain. We have to experience their trouble. That's the only way we can actually develop a better product for the majority of poor people. And how long is the R&D process typically? It's not a long process. This The product that we're building right now, I would say, took us about six months to eight months to, through this researching and putting together pieces. And I think we leveraged from our past experience of, because I said we already have a, like a banking system for microfinance players. And so we didn't spend more time researching on the technicalities, but we spent more time on what is it that the society wants and what would work for the society. So that's why we didn't spend more time, six months. And what was the biggest surprise for you developing the services app for rural users? So this is actually funny. The biggest surprise was when we started beta test testing the platform. And so we onboarded about 100 groups on the platform. And at the same time, we were trying to strike a partnership deal with Commercial Bank um, to sort of do the integrations to allow push and pull so people can push digital money on the platform and likewise withdraw also from the platform. You're going to be shocked that none of the banks that we spoke with saw an opportunity. Everyone was pushing us to next year. Others were saying, no, I'm not interested. You know, we're good. Until when we started pushing out some of the flyers on social media and, you know, trying to sort of get people sign up for the beta testing. And we started receiving feedback from the users. And one of the feedback was that uh, my friend, uh, one of the users, sent me a text to say, you know what, our group, we've been struggling, we've been looking for something like this, and we think it's going to help us. You know, our group is too big. We are actually 35 people, and, and actually this is what we are trying to do. Can you actually help us? And we're running a portfolio of $50,000. And what I did, I screenshot this conversation and sent to one of the head of innovation from one of the banks. I said, I'm still looking for a partner bank. Are you in or not? You know, and immediately we signed an NDA because they saw the figures. You know, I was surprised because that they were not coming on board. They, they could not see an opportunity until we sent them proof to say, look, this thing has created a buzz. You know, are you sure you don't want to come on board? And I was surprised they took it. You know, this time around, they were excited, like, no, this is a good product, let's, let's discuss, let's do this. So this is one of the excitement and one of the surprising moments that I had during this uh, product. Wow, that's a great story. Yeah. Because you can imagine there is a lot of money in sub-Saharan Africa. It's just it's always been a problem of how do you aggregate it at low cost, which tech answers that problem. Yes, that's true. So you're right. I think, I don't know, I can, having worked in an African bank for you know, two and a half years, I can see why there would be a lot of doubts about, oh, there's probably not money out there. And then it's once, you know, it's a text message, <laughs> you know, it's like people start to take that a little more seriously. So what are your plans to scale? So our plans, okay, so we're trying to sort of scale 
we've learned from experience with the other products from previous. Scalability was, was a challenge. Now, why we couldn't scale, like I said, I think it's different when you have an investor. You have all the tools and resources at your disposal. But then when you're also trying to survive and trying to push your product, there's only so much you can do with the resources that you have in terms of scalability. But our plan is to, we've actually launched both in Malawi and Zambia, and we're trying to sort of scale in these two countries for for starters. We're also trying to sort of look out for venture capitalists. You know, we're trying to go and pitch in the South African Innovation Summit, see if we can get some of the investors to help us with scalability and also product marketing and positioning on the market. So right now, that's our, our strategy to, to sort of get the proper funding and scale. We're targeting in five years, we want to have not less than one million people on the platform to push and pull money on the platform. And when you say that you're looking for VC fundings, would this be a Series A? So kind of in the range of, you know, at least $5 million? Sort of in the range of not $5 million. Um, well, sorry, I think I said yes to uh, your question, Series A. So see, this is early stages sort of funding. So Okay, so this would be anything. more, okay. So anything within the ranges of uh, 200K to 500K. Okay. Yes. And, you know, I'd like to switch gears a bit and focus on your work at Malawi's ICT Association, because you're the vice president of the association, which was set up about two years ago. And what was the backstory of joining? So actually, it, I think the LinkedIn profile or the website is, I don't know why it's saying two years ago, but I think it was actually set in 2006. Okay. reason yeah. being, yes, so it's a professional body that actually represent the IT people in Malawi or the IT practitioners in Malawi. So the idea was that, so we have Lawyers Association of Malawi and, and they are able to express their views whenever there's a policy being developed by the government and they want their profession view. And so this was also developed with an aim of promoting the ICT development in Malawi and also advising government policy issues as they relate to IT. Well, and I'm going to go back a little further because you're passionate about internet governance, which seems like a very abstract subject. And you also describe yourself as an internet security evangelist, which I found very interesting. And how was your interest in these bigger issues of the internet sparked? So I am a believer, a true believer of actually net neutrality, that every packet or every traffic on the internet should be treated equally, regardless whether it's coming from someone who is paying little money and someone who is paying more money to access the internet, everything should be treated equally. And the reason for that is think of entrepreneurs like me, you know, who is in Africa and they cannot afford to pay an extra penny to Google or big telcos sort of to prioritize my traffic on the internet. How are we going to make sure that entrepreneurs given equal opportunity on the internet? And that's why I actually say we should promote net neutrality. Everyone should have equal footing. Whether it's Google pushing their traffic content on the internet, they shouldn't be given priority because they have paid a lot of money to Comcast or any of the service providers. And coming to the local scene, I've, I've always also pushed for the same rights. I've pushed for 
you know, echoed voices on lower prices on the internet bundles or internet packages so that we are promoting innovation. Because I was talking to my colleague from Nigeria and he was saying he was in US. He was accessing internet with a speed of, I think is 100 megabytes per second. You know, this is at his location, like where he was staying. And I said, look, you know, we're living in a world where the same resources, I am sitting in Africa and I have this computer that is Pentium 4, I don't know if they still exist, and I have all these resources. And I have to do research on the internet, but I have to pay double the price. And I don't know, I have to pay, I have to invest in actually this internet. And we're expecting more innovators in Africa because, I mean, we have to keep up with the speed of innovation that is happening around the world. But the resources, you find that someone in the U.S. is accessing this higher much capacity in terms of the speed at a very good price as opposed to me. You know, and I'm supposed to contribute to my economy in the country, Malawi. And that's why I find that maybe if we actually have lower prices on the internet and give more access to young entrepreneurs and young innovators, I think we can have an enormous number of innovators across the continent because we have given them the, the right tools. We have given them the platform where they can research, they can, they can have all the sources they want and solve the challenges that we have in our communities. Mm, that's a brilliant point. And can you tell us a story yeah. of how you became so passionate about these issues? Because, you know, I've talked with other African tech entrepreneurs and you're the first I've met that's, you know, really talking about these issues with a lot of urgency. Okay, so no, for me, I think, okay, so being in the ID Association of Malawi, we started a program called the Innovations Awards, uh, which started in 2016. And I'll tell you, this is a true story actually that happened in Malawi. We, in, if I'm not wrong, in 2011, 2010, 2009, somewhere there, there was a little boy in a smaller village in Malawi who found, you know, some pieces of uh, radio capacitors and everything. And he pieced them together. He created a radio station, a community radio station. This is a school dropout, a primary school dropout, created a radio station. And all the community within his villages were actually tuning into his radio, you know, <laughs> and they would request songs. And this was a brilliant young man. Wow, that's and cool. Yes. What we did with the guy is that a regulator from Malawi went and said, you know, it's illegal to transmit when you're not licensed. And so we're going to have to arrest you. But because you're young, we'll let you pass. And some more wishes actually came in and said, okay, we'll sponsor you to go back to school, you know. And I said, but I think this guy didn't need to be sent back to school, to primary school. You know, he showed us the passion. And from there, I asked myself, I said, how many of such, you know, young boys do we have in our community that are going unnoticed? They're not being given a platform to sort of uh, air their concerns, tell us their views, and also given the right tools to innovate even more. And so... From then, we introduced this platform, ICT Innovations Awards, which identifies local talent and give them the platform to pitch their ideas in front of the government officials, banks, private sector, and sort of to give them a platform where they can actually take their ideas even much further. And so the experience has shown me, you know, to speak passionately about providing resources, whether asking government 
to remove taxes on internet or even the gadgets or computer gadgets because that is the only way we can promote the industry. And because of that background, I speak passionately about making sure that we are given the right tools to promote innovation within our communities. Mm, that's great. What has been your biggest failure and what did you learn from it? Our biggest failure, <laughs> we created uh, one of the softwares to manage the pump stations. You know, in, I think in Africa, we, we have more of these uh, pump stations where people would go and gas their vehicles. We created a platform, a very good platform, and we were excited as we are with the current uh, software that we're, we're building. But we learned a lesson that I think we were too excited that we overlooked the fact that the market was not ready uh, and, for and such I'm just, a product. I'm going to jump in here, Brown. So this was a software platform that was for gas stations, but what did it do exactly? We spent a lot of resources developing this product with an excitement that we're going to because there was no one in the market. There still is no one on the market providing that kind of a solution. But then uh, we realized when we launched that the market was not ready for such innovation. And okay. we wasted, yeah, we wasted all the resources but and it's problem? not being used by oh, anyone. Okay. But what problem was it, was this looking to address? It was looking to address the manual way of reconciling the uh, transactions on a pump. So, because right now what they do is they'll have to manually check the pump meter and say, okay, I'm starting my shift today and this is six o'clock. I'm starting, the meter reading is 1900. So when I'm closing, I'll have to go back and reference to that. Okay, I started at 1900 meter reading and then calculate how many, you know, liters you've sold, transfer into money. And then the whole bookkeeping is actually in a manual format. And there's a lot of fraud uh, with that. And so what we said is let's automate process. You know, you don't have to input these things. Automatically, when you are dispersing fuel, the pump will actually tell you, okay, you started on this number and I'm expecting you to give me $10,000 worth of sales and you account for that. And that was actually the challenge that we we're trying to address uh, with the MyStation Pro, which was the filling station management system. Oh, got it. But yeah. so what was the problem on the demand side? The problem was that I think people are still comfortable and okay with the manual. Although when you speak to them, they complain. But when we launched, everyone kept saying, who is using it? Is it working? Does it work? You know, <laughs> and everyone like, okay, so even we'll give you for free. If you want to, to try it for free, we can actually give you for free. You don't have to pay us anything. And there was that reluctance on the market. Like, ah, not too sure, not now, you know, we'll come back to you. It's been two years now. And so we learned a lesson. We, one of these days, we were actually watching one of the YouTube videos. There's a platform in USA, they call it Felcon, where you just go and talk about, you know, how you felt in one <laughs> of the products. It's called Felcon. And one of the talks was from the Uber co-founder, you know, and he explained his experience from when he started to where he got to Uber. If you reference to that story, I think you smile when you're coming from such an experience. You smile to say, you know what? I think I haven't gotten the worst part yet. So we're good, you know. <laughs> and what's the best advice you've received as an entrepreneur? The best advice we've received from the community and the friends is to continue doing what we're doing. 
and to continue the passion that we have, drive that we have, but most of all to continue doing an excellent job, you know, building resilient systems. That's what we are recognized with the local. And so that's the best advice we've received. And to remain as a team also. Right. Now it seems that, I mean, you've been together, what, for... Seven years yes, now? Yes, it's been it. Yay, yes. Yeah, so it seems like you have a great co-founder team and yeah, it's working well. Yes, correct. Yeah, that's true. And what are some free or low-cost resources for coding or for software development that our listeners can take advantage of? I think one thing I've learned in being in this industry is that you would always develop something end up lacking where to actually get it hosted. So if you look at most of the applications these days, you have to have a cloud platform where you can actually get them hosted and maybe integrate with other existing platforms. And so that is still remains a challenge. I'm not too sure how other countries in Africa have solved that. But for us, we leverage some of the offers that are available from Amazon, from Microsoft Azure, that allows us to actually tap into their development tools. So if you're like we are a .NET platform developers, and so we leverage most of the times the Microsoft startup program, which gives us free tools, development tools. You can download, you know, Visual Studio for free. They give you a license as a startup. They give you even tutorials, books that you can actually read, get yourself up to speed on how you can host your applications on Azure, how you can scale up your applications if you're actually building scalability in your applications. And so those are some of the tools that are out there that would be entrepreneurs can actually take advantage of without having to pay anything until you get into the business. And if you're interested in coding or software development, can you recommend any websites or anything you can find online, you know, just like free tools for learning? Yes. So there are many platforms now available on the internet where you can go and actually learn about coding, depending on which discipline you want to actually focus on. Like I said, I think the greatest challenge that we have in Africa, I'll still come back to this point, the greatest challenge that we have in Africa is that we, you know, most of the tools that we're talking about here are available on the internet, you know. And so it means you need to have, first of all, you need to have internet so that you go to a website and, you know, access some of these pages and download some of the content. I would say that I think the coming in of innovation hubs is one of the greatest achievements that we've we've done so far. Although we need more efforts on that, I think in Malawi we only have about, about two of those you know, and so it means what I can actually advise the budding entrepreneurs is that get yourself into these innovation hubs because this is where you actually find a network of like-minded people that you can share ideas. They can also share some of the resources. Maybe someone already downloaded them from the internet. You can copy from these people. You can share insights from these people, experiences from these people. And so the greatest resource center for me, I would say, these innovations hubs. Mm, okay. If you had a billion dollars, which sector in yes. Africa would you invest in? I would not hesitate to invest in that in the fintech market. Okay. Can you elaborate? Okay. So, you know, like I said, I give you statistics from Malawi, you know, and I'm telling you, this is a problem across Africa. Accessibility to loans is a challenge even up until now. You know, and so 
if I had a billion dollar, well, I would invest it into a loan platform, you know, giving out affordable loans to the majority of the people in Africa. And I think we still have a lot of opportunities that actually can invest in this sector, taking advantage that the financial sector hasn't been able to reach out to the majority of the people in Africa. If you could take a one-year sabbatical from Angle Dimension and you could go anywhere else in Africa to learn and improve your business, where would you go and why? (laughs) I would go to Kenya. I would go to Kenya because we're still learning on how they have actually managed to bring about the mobile money innovation and actually be able to scale it and push transactions in billions a day. You know, for me, that's the greatest innovation. If I was to take a sabbatical leave, I would go to Kenya and actually spend more time understanding the cultural issues and also understanding the tech space within Kenya. There's a lot of learning that we actually can do from an individual point of me or from the government point of view. There's a lot of learning that you can actually do. So for me, I would go to Kenya, sit down with people that actually are making things work and ask questions, you know, and yeah, come back a whole new person altogether. And... If you could give one piece of actionable advice to an aspiring African entrepreneur, what would it be? I just did that actually this afternoon. But yes, again, the most important thing is to believe in yourself, believe in your idea that you have. I once spoke to a group of young people and I taught them, if you are explaining a business concept or if you're explaining an idea to a group of people and they think you are crazy, you have a great idea. You know, and you just have to be disciplined. You have to believe in yourself and push your idea and have the passion for it. Do not get discouraged. That for me would be my advice to the an aspiring entrepreneur. And Brahm, where can our listeners find you on social media? So they can find me on LinkedIn. They can find me on Twitter, on Facebook. Yeah, I think these are the platforms that I am. Perfect. And I'll post those links uh, to the show notes page. Well, Brahm, I want to thank you so much for coming on Young African Entrepreneur. It was great talking to you. Thank you so much, Victoria. It was nice talking to you and nice, you know, getting insights from your point of view, asking questions that are thought provoking as well. That's all for this episode of Young African Entrepreneur. But we can use your help in evolving this show through your feedback and suggestions by engaging with us on social media at YAE Podcast. You can also visit yaepodcast.com for show notes, resources, and information on today's episode. That's yaepodcast.com. It's your time, your journey, your Africa, young African entrepreneur.